fighting men. They have full threescore thousand. That's five to one. Besides, they are all fresh. It is a fearful odds. Oh, that we now had here. But one ten thousand of those men in England that do no work today. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. Brother, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and grounds for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand at tiptoe when this day is named and arouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live old age will yearly, on the vigil, feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispin's. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in their mouths as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few. We happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day! Men, when you look out at the world that roils and rages outside the threshold of your home, when you look into the future of that world, what do you see? One thing I think we all see, undeniable, is a world at war. There seem to be battles raging on every front, economic, sexual, societal, cultural, in art, marriage, media, business, politics, and law, battles for what is true and good and beautiful, battles for the very soul of humanity. This seeing, this seeing of the true scope of the task before us and our children will prove to be one of the greatest tests of your leadership, your masculine duty, of your fatherhood. Will you look at the black dangers and fell foes before your family and despair? Denethor slowly slipping into bleak madness, locked in his high tower, mind captive to the enemy. Will you black pill your children teaching them that they're doomed, 
that they have no hope, that theirs is a future of defeat heading into greater defeat and ultimate downfall? Or will you give your children hope? Will you teach them strength in the face of strong foes? Will you hearten them, brace them, build them up and send them out, sons and daughters of your strength? Will you put a sword in their hand or will you put ice in their hearts? Join us in this episode of the King's Hall Podcast as we aim to make self-ruled men who rule well, who know that to win the world means putting strong hope in their children's hearts. Well, gentlemen, welcome to this episode and our listeners, the King's Hall Podcast, joined today by the Viking himself, Dan Burkholder, on my left. Yeah, that's right. By the way, after that cold open, I'm ready to go to war. Let's oh, like, dude, I've got go. a sword in my office. Let's go. Like a LARPer, a dorky <laughs> LARPer, I have a sword in my office. <laughs> I got a Glock on my head. Dude, I got, <laughs> go down. I got a Hellcat tucked in my <laughs> waistband here. I'm, I'm ready okay, to Dan, go. Okay, Dan, you get the sword. Dang it. <laughs> you go first. Yeah, you have your doofus. LARPer sword. Yeah. You draw fire, <laughs> we'll flank. Uh, also, uh, the French-Canadian... Uh, Brian Sauvé, <laughs> welcome, 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 welcome to this podcast. He's looking around. He's, He's looking, looking like there a, around. Actually, uh, is so there a French Canadian we, here? We were watching the Manning cast, and I think it was Will Ferrell was on, and he was pronouncing the defensive end, which was Thibodeau, and he said, and there's Thibodeau, the French-Canadian, trying to make a tackle, but he can't because he's French-Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> cold. That was cold. It's true, true, but But, but I thought of Brian, naturally. Hey, I, I just, you know what, Eric? I'm so glad that seeing failure made you think of me. Yeah, it did. It almost blackboard <sighs> me. Yeah, yeah. Until I heard the cold open and introduction. And then it kind of brought it back. So there's something about this, this picture that you spoke of with Denethor. Mm-hmm. And it really made me think of a couple of things. First of all, this is the return of the king when I think, right, when we read most of Denethor. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, one of the things that uh, we, in the last episode we talked about fertility. And one of the marks of Gondor was that they had these high halls and these high towers and they had no children. Yeah. So one of the marks of hopelessness is going to be not having kids. Yep. I've often heard other people say if you have children, that really is a vested interest uh, yeah. placing hope in the future. They spent more time thinking about the roles of their dead ancestors and forefathers than they did about their living children is one of the things that Tolkien, I mean, to paraphrase, puts in that scene. And a big part of it, it seems like, as, as our kind of resident expert Tolkien guy, uh, Ben's here too, but he doesn't have a mic, so, you know, you went out. My question to you is, do you think Tolkien understood something about this the problem with this meta narrative of, of decline that so many people embrace was that happened was that what happened in Gondor? Do you think was that people just they just embraced that things were always going to get worse and worse? Yeah, I think they did, and it was because part of the the image that Tolkien weaves into this scene is that you have the White City, and it's looking out east towards Mordor, and it is the the bulwark against the expansion of of Mordor, and the as long as they stayed true and the blood of Numenor ran true and they were, you know, brave men of the West, they stood their ground. But what happens is that the enemy, he doesn't first invade their walls. He first invades their hearts and he does it through their head. Mm -hmm. He does it through the steward of Gondor, Denethor, through the Palantir. As he looks into this uh, Palantir, which is an art higher than him and so dangerous for him to wield is how Tolkien and looks for, at it. And for, it 
for people who don't like, it's like foresight. Basically, he looks into the future. Yeah, the or... plant, the seeing stones would be set up around the kingdom, and they were very ancient, created by ancient powers, and and basically they would give you sight to the different stones, and also you could, you know, if you had the the strength like... of will, you could control them and see things far off. So a, a, a Palantir is basically like an iPhone. 15. It's a well, lot I, like an iPhone. Actually, I shared a, a theory with with Ben Garrett that uh, AI is a real-world plantier. It kind of is, though. Yeah. And and what happened, though, is that Denethor, he had ice creep in his heart. He was he was shown you can't make the plantier lie. Like, it's it's even Sauron couldn't do that. But he could show him selective truth. And so he just kept showing Denethor the forces of his armies and how strong evil was until Denethor's will was broken. And you see then... I think two pictures against that, and I'll tie this to our cold open here. I think it's important for our listeners who maybe didn't catch what was happening. But uh, you see against that the speeches of Theoden and the speeches of Aragorn before the Black Gate and the speeches of Theoden on the Pelennor, um, before the forces of Mordor are coming, or even Gandalf, the, the giver of hope in the story. The, who, he gives hope to the hearts of men. These figures show a foil against Denethor's black-pilled – he's already been conquered before the fight happens – and against that, you see these men who stand against seemingly insurmountable odds. And they basically say, even if we die today, we are going to make such an end, as Theoden says in the movie, as you know, to be worthy of remembrance. Mm. And, and that's the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V, Act Four. Maybe, Dan, can you set up like so that people who maybe didn't understand what was happening in that speech that we played – uh, what what's the scene? Why is that yeah. so relevant? Yeah, so the English had been marching for a long time. They're wet, they're tired, they're cold, they're attacking the French, and they're outnumbered five to one. And it, things are looking very, very bleak. And so the scene is set up saying like, hey, it's going to be the St. Crispin's Day speech, or St. Crispin's Day. Mm. And men do no work. If we could just have one in a thousand of those men that do no work, you know, we would we would actually have a chance. Yeah. And so the men are grumbling and they're, they're looking, well, I mean, they're overwhelmed. Probably they're tired. Die. They're going against a fresh enemy. Uh, they're, they're just, they're going to die. They realize that that's probably what's going to happen. And then you have King Henry come in and say, what is this talk that I'm hearing? Yeah. I would wish for not one man more to share in the glory. And then you get the rest of the speech yes. of him essentially saying, like, what an opportunity for us to win glory. Like, mm. anybody that doesn't have the stomach to fight, I'll write a passport. Go. You, go. It's because like I don't want to die with you. you, you <laughs> you're not deserving of the honor to die with us. Yes. And so that that's kind of the setup of the speech, and of course in the in the in the Shakespeare play they they win, yeah, yeah uh, decisively. I mean, it's the French. It is the French. Look, it is the French. You know, there's nothing quite like a great cup of coffee in the morning. Here at New Christen and Press, we've really been enjoying coffee from our friends at Squirrely Joe's Coffee, a family-owned coffee company from Illinois. Joe and his wife, Rachel, put a ton of effort into quality roasted beans and wholeheartedly support us in our vision to bring all of Christ to all of life. Yes, even to that cup of coffee that's in your hands. You can order your first batch of coffee from Squirrely Joe's by going to squirrelyjoes.com or by clicking the link in the show notes below. First-time customers will receive 20% off their first order, so be sure to head to their website. Again, that's squirrelyjoes at squirrelyjoes.com. 
Let them help you in your mission while you help them in theirs. Caffeinating the Modern Reformation. Red meat is a staple of a healthy, protein-packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why I buy my meat from Salt and Strings Butchery. Salt and Strings is owned and operated by my friends Quinn and Samantha Bible, and the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by my friends Quinn and Anthony, and not only is it the best meat I've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values. Salt and Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chakros, fajita meats, and ground beef. You can order your beef box today for just $259. They will send it directly to your door. The hog box is $239 and features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorites, pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast sausage links. You can place your order today at saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. And also be sure to follow Salt and Strings on Instagram. We'll also include the link in the show notes. The Battle of Agincourt. But I, I mean, in in uh, literature, in culture, I mean, this the St. Crispin's Day speech stands at the top yeah. oh. among the, some of the greatest speeches. Amazing. It's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And, and, and it, it is a, it is a speech for our time. Yeah, it shows these foils. That's what we're trying to give you here at the front is to paint two kind of like the meme, which way a western man. And there's the there's the two roads forking before yeah. you. Will you go down to the we are lesser sons of greater sires? Everything is decline, the narrative of decline and inevitable defeat and children like, hey, do your best, but it's going to suck. We're talking about fatherhood this season. So this is not only about your own heart, we're talking about you as a leader, you as a steward of Gondor, or you as the king of your castle, or you as the father, the head in your home, which way are you going to point your, which road are you going to teach your children that they are on? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, one of the the characters we've, we've mentioned in passing, sort of the opposite of, you know, what was going on in Gondor with Denethor is Theoden. And here you have a guy who is for a time blackpilled. Mm-hmm. And this is something I think that could give a lot of people hope is that you don't have to stay that way. Yeah. Gandalf, as you mentioned, speaks to him. Um, but Brian, I want to ask you, uh, maybe just paint a little bit of this scene on the Pelennor Fields. There's this great image. A- as I was recollecting this, I'm thinking of the psalm singing video going around um, with our friends in Moscow. I think uh, Chase Chase Davis and Matt Patrick had shared it. It was like flash mob singing uh, Psalm 134 in one of the local pubs in Moscow. And it was funny because the number of journalists who shared it were like, I think these guys are going to win. <laughs> and I was like, interesting. And and a lot of other people were like, this is so dangerous, blah, blah, blah. Well, and they're right. It is dangerous. But one of the things that was said about Theoden, he, he becomes white-pilled. He's on the field, and they're singing as they slew. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, Brian, as a different foil, talk about Theoden and why his story is important, particularly at the end – and particularly what he says about, you know, going to his father's, all that good stuff. Yeah, Theoden is, again, <laughs> Rohan is riding to an absolutely unwinnable battle, militarily speaking. Until Aragorn shows up with the armies of the dead come to fulfill their oath, and he went through the gates of the dead and all of that, like that pass. 
until they arrive at the scene. And they don't know that. They don't know that that's going to happen at all. In fact, all of their their military surve- surveillance, all of their, uh, what's the word? Their evidence. Their, um, intel. their intelligence yeah. is telling them that there's another fleet that's going to come out of the east with even more people. They think it's the enemy. So even if they were to defeat every single orc on the field in front of them, which is like five to one, again, then they know that there's another enormous army bigger than them that's going to show up sometime that day, the next day, whatever. And even if they don't, like, and as the story progresses, you find out, even if they had beat that army, there's another army in Mordor that's ready. I mean, Sauron's just, he has like three successive possibilities of destroying the world of men. And that's what it is. He's bent on destroying the world of men, not just conquering them, but completely ending their existence. And in the face of that, Theoden says, essentially, arise, riders of Theoden, fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter, spear shall be shaken, shield, shield shall be splintered, a sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises, ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor. And it's this picture, the way that it hits me is that it, it preaches something that's really throughout the book, the, the whole series that Tolkien really gets. And it's that for a man, losing and death is not the end if he die bravely. There's glory in it. There's glory in it. And, and ultimately the hope that's there, and Gandalf points to this as well in a similar scene or a, a related scene, is the hope of resurrection. So he's teaching his children, even when it's not a rose-colored glasses speech. He doesn't say like, we're now going to 100% win. Don't even worry. Like your, your, don't, your wife at home, she doesn't even worry. No, he's like sending them, and they all know this, into their death in their mind, barring super, you know, almost supernatural intervention. And yet, because of what I would see as the hope of resurrection, he knows that if you win glory in the right cause, even if you go and you completely fail, that that's not a black pill. That's a white pill. Because ultimately, goodness, truth, and beauty will win in the end. Well, it's interesting, too, uh, reading Michael Walsh, uh, his book, Last Stands. He has this really interesting statement. He says, a historical observation. He said, cultures that go down fighting tend to rise again from the ashes. Yeah. But if they surrender and just give up, it's they over. don't. Like, it's done. Because it shows in the, in the foundation of their cultural spirit that they have already, again— the loss happened in their soul well before it happened on the battlefield. Well, Eric, that's similar to a conversation we had this morning about Churchill and the Boer Wars. Yeah. Where you were telling me that Churchill observed as the Boers were fighting, they were singing psalms. Yeah, he said they, they so they're in their train, they're surrounded by the Boers. And he said the most, th- this was later in life he's reflecting, he said the most terrifying scene in my life was the Boers coming on our, they were surrounding the train and attacking the train full speed on horseback. And they are singing psalms as loud as they can. And he said, I knew in that moment their cause was just and ours was not. Wow. And I was like, wow. And, the, and he was like, I was terrified. These wow. psalms sing, singing as they slew. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting picture. So we think about this as fathers. Uh, last episode, again, we talked about being virile and fertile and having children. And that's really glorious. But if we raise these children and then we teach them to be blackpilled, we've failed. I want to connect this then to something Elon Musk said. And this has been the last couple of years or something like that. 
But he said fundamentally SpaceX, all this, Tesla, his, his work at X now. He said the whole point is he said I want to give the next generation hope because people need to have hope about the future. So he's come out and he said, you know, overpopulation, total myth. We could comfortably house all 7 billion people on planet Earth in America. This is this is garbage. It's bunk. Um, and so we'll start to unpack some of this. But you think about this for future generations, giving them hope. Do you think that's why post-millennialism has been such a hot topic for the youth? It's the young people who are saying yes to this and no to the we lose down here stuff. Yes, absolutely. If you think about all of our personal experiences, uh, having some sort of dispensational influence on our Christian lives, especially when we were younger, you you get this narrative that you know Satan is in control of everything still, and we're still waiting for that escape from this world. Well, that's in fact one of one of the tenets. I I was listening to John MacArthur's sermon on uh, dispensationalists, um, but he said Satan is ruling here over this kingdom. This is his kingdom. So that's actually consistent with the theological position of what you're saying. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and I mean, just to back up for a moment, the reason why we're convinced of post-millennialism is the scriptures, not because it's just, oh, well, this is optimistic. We needed hope. I, I, I'm i generally an optimistic guy, so I'm attracted to it. That's actually not true. <laughs> that's yeah, actually. actually not true. So you have this, this uh, myth of decline and that everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And you're just waiting for this, you know, deus ex, ex, ex machina, you know, sort of event of the rapture so that you can just get out of here. I know we've joked about this uh, privately. I, I don't know about on the on the podcast, but, you know, when I was in school, it would be like in high school and I didn't do my homework or I'm going to just bomb a test. And I'm like, Lord Jesus, please rapture me now. Like, just get me <laughs> out of here. You know, and, and I don't so, want to face the consequences. So when, when you're introduced to um, this eschatological position of post-millennialism and you, you start reading through the scriptures and you're like, wait a minute, this myth of decline is a myth. The decline is not inevitable. In fact, it seems like the entire world will worship Christ. Mm-hmm. And that means we win. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. It, it, def- it definitely gives you a different perspective on life. And we've done uh, previous episodes on post-millennialism and, yeah. and this optimistic. It, you guys are looking like you want to jump Well, in. I was just going to say it's important. It's, it's, it's important to note that you can actually look at almost every culture, you know, culture and period where there's like, you know, say the Roman Empire at different stages. Almost every period of history, the contemporary people in that in that period – tend to believe that they are in a moment of decline from some previous peak. It's really interesting. Like you see this like generation after generation in the Roman Empire. Everyone's always saying like, if only we could get back to that, the day back in Cicero's day. And then like, you know, they're in the first century. If only we could get back. And then in the 300s, if only we could get back to the first century. And then in the 400s, if only we could get back to the second century. We have a tendency as human beings, I think, to do this. It's like the Uncle Rico syndrome. Uncle expand Rico. <laughs> the uncle rico sort of, you know like the good old days the good old days are always in the past yeah exactly is this a napoleon dynamite yes, reference uncle good rico night. if i would if they would have put me in at quarterback we would have won state <laughs> yeah you're, you're right though it is this th- there is something in the human psyche that does tend to read the narrative of wherever they're at in history as being at this point of decline 
And and I'm not saying that people are like, well, what if you actually are? Because sometimes you are. I actually do think, now I'm going to say, and I also am, <laughs> am one of those people. I do think we're in a period of obvious decline culturally in America, and we can trace this to apostasy and many of the things we've talked about. But But I say all of that just to make sure that you don't then superimpose your moment here in this little blip of the story God's writing in this little country that's ultimately not that old, all this, and then superimpose that narrative and say, because of inflation in 2023, all of history is in decline. You know, abandon your posts! Every, like Theoden in the movie when he's he's yelling at everybody and then Gandalf whacks him with a stick, but... Thus ends the <laughs> yeah. And he's like, prepare for battle! I, I think it's interesting. Uh, this is, again, within the last couple of years, Jordan Peterson had even uh, done some work with, I think, NATO. And then he said that he was looking at data from around the world. And he said it really intrigued me because everybody talks about how there is this myth of decline in every sector, not just religious. It's like a cultural dispensationalism as well. And he said, but when you looked at the data, he's like, uh, hunger has gone down. Poverty has gone down. The world is more wealthy than it's ever been. We're, <laughs> we're alleviating a lot of – and he said environmental crisis is a total myth. Because when you look at all the metrics that we use to track it, things have actually gotten far better. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think looking at life and saying, look, there's always going to be dragons. There's always going to be challenges. Even even COVID, um, I had a number of friends who were continually saying to me, the banking system is going to crash at any moment. We're going to be fighting each other tooth and nail for food supplies. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be toilet paper. Every culture, every time, to Brian's point – there is a whole host of chicken littles. You're always going to have those people. Even in the the height, the greatest heyday, you know, you're going to have people who are like, you have this in a church, in a family, in a, sometimes the only thing a, type, a certain personality can see is all of the problems. And they're like, well, you should have done this different. Well, what about that? There's constant fussers. We have to fight that. Yeah, so Brian, I, I want to ask you and Dan, you as well, as we think about ways that fathers might blackpill their homes. Yeah. And, and I think we'll talk about ways not to do this as well, but um, I'll kick off with maybe one and then ask your opinion. I think one uh, – I grew up in you know white, suburban, conservative America. I think one of the biggest ones is media consumption related to you know the conservative movement. Um, so I grew up with just all the men around me uh, that were like my father's age, mm -hmm. constant consumption of Rush Limbaugh, mm -hmm. constant consumption of Mark Levin, and fundamentally content that was like – we're losing, you know, um, I think it was Sam Francis. He called the conservative movement the beautiful losers. <laughs> like they delight in losing. Yeah. Um, and so there was an expectation of losing. What did you call that earlier? Conservative dispensationalism? Yeah. Like it's a it's, great turn of phrase. It's just dispensationalism that's also invaded the conservative Well, I mean, movement. really, what conservatism is in a way is an encapsulation of what you talked about yeah. and trying to recapture the glory years, right? Yeah, we need to You're trying conserve. to conserve that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're holding on to the past. Yeah. That's right. And true conservatism is a vision for human life and human flourishing anchored to immutable, unchangeable, objective principles of truth, justice, beauty that are rooted in the nature of God. And so yes, we're conserving things, we're defending things, but what can often happen is that liberalism is cast as a positive vision where they're marching towards progress, progressivism. And conservatives are always kind of like holding the coach back. And we need to kind of flip the narrative in many ways for our children and in our own hearts to say, well, no, 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 we're actually going to be the ones who are progressing. 
we're going to drive the Huns out. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that what a lot of people like Sam Francis, Pat Buchanan, Paleocon movement, what they started to realize about conservatism and the rot that was within was that the left was fundamentally, like you're talking about progressives, they're fundamentally post-millennial. They have a utopian positive vision for the future. They really are fighting the culture war to win. And most conservatives were losing because they were saying, I'm just trying to conserve whatever the leftist victory from yesterday was, uh, which ends up not being that much. All that to say, at the very blue-collar level, guys are consuming people who are continually chicken-littling it to death. Yeah. And so when, when you're constantly listening to Rush Limbaugh talk about how awful the liberals are and how much the conservatives suck, and, and that's all you hear, you don't walk away being like, build, fight, win. You walk away being discouraged and disheartened. And angry. And angry. Yeah. And then a, a lot of times people get entrapped in these false flag things because they're easily manipulatable. Yeah. Okay. So I think, Dan, conservatism has not really been actually Brian's raising his hands. Well, so that, I was just going to say no. to this point, to your point, anger is, a, is an emotion that's easy to manipulate. Joy is not. Interesting. Can you? That, I mean, I just think that that's, there's a reason that... People always push back when I tweet about this, about righteous anger and unrighteous anger and and how the scriptures warn us, like James is so clear, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness God requires. Okay, deal with that verse. I think one of the things it means is that even though there is such thing as righteous anger, where someone can paint in black colors the the, the evil deeds that are being done and, and provoke righteous anger in you. They're killing babies. They're cutting the, the penises off of little boys. They're chemically castrating. You know, you do all of that. But the thing that conservatives and Christians need to remember is that anger is not a safe emotion to sit in. It has to be quickly turned to righteous action and jo joyful righteous action fighting for joy, or it will curdle into bitterness or other things that are destructive to the human soul. So even though there is such thing as righteous anger, even righteous anger is supposed to motivate us to aim for the joy of righteousness and joy in the Lord, and for righteous deeds, not mere complaining and stewing in bitter anger. It right. doesn't do anything. Righteous anger should lead to justice. That's uh, what it's supposed to do. To justice, And yeah, it puts right. an end to the wicked deeds, and then there's joy. Well, and I, I think the perfect, he's kind of like the in-between, in I guess, between all the characters in Lord of the Rings, is Gandalf. So... Also in The Return of the King, Brian, you remember the scene. Is he with Pippin? And they talk about the joy in his face. Yeah, he has. He could like set the kingdoms battles laughing. raging. And it's like everybody in Gondor is like, we're all going to die. And I think I've said this before, but Gandalf in the story, again, this is not portrayed well in the movies. Gandalf has Narya, one of the three elven rings of power. And Narya is the ring that puts hope in the hearts of men. Yes. So Gandalf is a character fundamentally of hope. He I doesn't need one win. of them rings. I need one of them rings. <laughs> Isn't that great? Like <laughs> He doesn't conquer by the power of his magic. He doesn't conquer by the power of his sword. Gandalf conquers by ordering the kingdoms of men around hope. That's so, what he does. So, so a big part of this, and, and I would say this to fathers, like, v again, very blue collar, very practical. People consume a lot of our content. I think more and more on the rise, you have podcasts and stuff like that because guys are working jobs or listening to stuff. So what I would say to you guys as fathers, you are going to be either the Denethor or the Gandalf in your house. Yes. You are going to be the guy that either spreads joy and hope or dismay. And so that is going to come back to what are you consuming? 
who are you listening to all the time? I know for me, coming out of the conservative movement and, you know, reading that stuff all the time, nonstop, only thing I consumed, I remember hearing Doug Wilson say things like, oh, there's never been a better time to be alive. Look at all the things you have. Be joyful. Let's go fight. And I remember thinking, I don't even know what to do with this. I think this guy's delusional. <laughs> what is he yeah. talking about? The the the, the whole – it's so important for fathers to, to be able to say to their children, as Doug has recently said, remember Acts 17, guys, that God has appointed the times and the boundaries of our lives. So, so what that means is that your children, when you look out at the landscape of battles before them, economic, sexual, cultural, religious, all these battles before them, God chose them to live in this time. Mm. Those dragons have their names on them. So when I think about the future and the battles, I need as a father to think Ari and Ira and Cyril and Alfred and Daphne and Winifred playing those roles as sons and daughters do in complementary ways. They are the ammunition. They're the arrows that are going to go out into these dragons. And God is the one who decided they would fight those dragons. So it's not like this. I'm so sorry, kids, that, you know, it's going to be really tough for you. And if, if only you'd been born in the boomer generation, well, you if only these... you could have been a boomer, then you could have had a house and you could have... I'm like, no, no, no. Like you guys are going to be the ones that go out and God gave you these dragons. So go and go and fight them. Well, I was just on Twitter today. I was posting about the state of things, whatever, you know, typical as one does inane tweeting, whatever. And um, the number of comments on there was kind of shocking where they were like, I weep for my children. I don't weep for my children. Stop it. Like I'm preparing my children. I'm like, boys, what we have before us is a target rich environment. <laughs> In a lot of ways, I Full envy sense. my children because yep. so much of the, and we're of the neutral world mm -hmm. existed when we were growing up. I'm like, man, I wasted so much time. I didn't realize what was oh, actually man. happening. And now we're, the, you know, since 2020 in this great unveiling, the apocalypse of our mm -hmm. time, you actually see like, whoa, the battle lines are right there. They're clear. There They're they are. really clear now. I, I do want to say as far as media goes, for, for younger kids, two of my favorite books to read to my boys, and they actually absolutely love this. So my my little uh, now three-year-old boy, for his birthday, he wanted a St. George and the Dragon birthday mm -hmm. cake because his favorite book is St. George and the Dragon, and it's a retelling by Margaret Hodges. And With it, the really good illustrations. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love that I book. mean, and the other one is The Kitchen Night that, that yes. she does. And, and those stories are Excellent, because mm -hmm. as you're reading through St. George, I mean, it's a longer yeah. you know, book for kids, but as you're reading through it, there is no delusions that there's going to be a dragon, there's going to be a battle, mm -hmm. and even amidst the battle, you know, he has like a small victory, but then he's he ends up getting like scorched with fire, yeah. you know, and, and, and the battle is hard, but there's so much glory yeah. at the end. And I mean, that is the narrative that we're telling the kids as we look out, uh, and, and your older kids, it's not just younger kids, obviously this book has been good for me too, but you look at the dragons out there, you look at the, the enemy, you know, that, that needs to be conquered and you're like, this is going to be so hard. And, and I just think of St. Crispin's day. Dude, it's like, there's so much glory yes. to be won. I, I mean, what it. a time to live there's in. There's not enough Christians who are, understand these things. I don't want to share this with any, like, I know. I, I'm I tell, just kidding. I, I want tell my six year old boy when he like, when he's like not being kind to his brothers, mm -hmm. I'm like, son, you were made for this time. You are are a leader and you could be great yes. and there is so much glory to win and you must love your friends. You must love yes. your brothers because there is so much opportunity. And if you steal your strength and steal your glory by beating up on your brothers, yeah. by beating up on your friends and not understanding there's an enemy out there, you will lose it all. 
And he looks at me confused, but <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm three. <laughs> I just, I hope it's actually out it's by the six, time this but... episode comes out. Yeah. Uh, the song I put on Hearth songs, it's called Old Neptune, He's Roaring. Go listen to it because you just almost quoted the, ver- the, the chorus. Oh, really? You know, come on, boys, don't you know there are dragons out there? Dragons out there. Come on, boys, don't be slow. Cut down Leviathan, go get the girl. It's a song about encouraging <laughs> sons to pursue the right kind of glory. And it's like, you could have saved time. I could have just written that for you. Yeah, no, you could, kidding. dude. Absolutely. Can you? Can we workshop together? Well, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> it's interesting too when you when you think about leadership. I was even thinking about sports analogy for those of us who who like sports. Brian will get this one. Yeah, thank you. Um, no, thank you for contextualizing for me, Eric. I yeah, this that. is contextualization. Yeah. Uh, but on Sunday, the, the Broncos played, and they win almost no football games recently. Um, so it's almost like you wouldn't expect sort of the confidence and the hopefulness. But they were down by, I think, over 21 points to the worst team in football, which was the Bears. <laughs> oh, no. And I love this scene, though, because they asked Sean Payton, the head coach, they were like, you guys came back and you won. Like, you you guys basically suck. How did you How did you do that? And he, he's kind of cringe, uh, but Russ Wilson and his positivity, they said he lined up, he lined the team up in the huddle, and he, he had everybody turn, and he said, I want you to look at the other team. This is on, like, one of the final drives. And he says, look in their eyes. They know we're going to win. Oh, and the other team hears move. him. And so he's like, what? A-? That's a king move. And the Unreal. next play to the rookie, Mims, he throws like a 65-yard pass. And then he looks at his team and he's like, I told you. They know we're going to win. <laughs> and they go down and they win. So uh, would have sucked if they lost. But I mean, that's that <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there is a funny story because uh, like two, three years ago, the Broncos are on like their two-yard line. And mimicking the drive, John Elway come back, they beat Cleveland, they go 98 yards. Vance Joseph tells his team, he goes, boys, because John Elway had apparently done this, we got them right where we want them. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that drive, the Broncos ended with a safety. Oh, no. And so it was kind of like he had fell flat. Uh, <laughs> just a little, like literally he fell flat in the end. <laughs> Some of those moments <laughs> suck. But here's what I will say, uh, tying this all back to, as men we need – to be inspirers, mm-hmm. to be a Gandalf, we have to be reading inspiring things. And so one of the things that gives me hope about our kids, and I'm going to tie it to something about King's Hall Season 3, I look at what they're reading. I look at what Dan's reading. Dan starts researching Christendom, and you're, we're reading about King Alfred. What happens to the energy in our hearts when we read about men who are up against it? Men who fought off the Danes. They fought off the Vikings. They had literally no reason to expect that Christendom would succeed in England. Demon Turks. And they destroyed them. (laughs) Sorry. So, Dan, I I want you to speak to, again, this goes back to media consumption and book consumption. How have the books, great books, why we believe in it for St. Brennan's. Why is filling our kids and our family with the great books of Western literature so important if we're going to be men who inspire? Well, yeah, I think... I think there is uh, two things. Uh, The first thing is that Brian is right. We do have a natural human instinct to look at the past and say, those were the glory years. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. And it's really important to understand how that happened, right? You look at, like, how was Christendom built? Who were the men that were the main players in this? Who, what are the great stories of Christendom? But then the other thing that's really, really important is to then spur the hearts of your children on towards building that again. Like we can yes. do that. It's not we just can do nostalgia. That. These men, you know what's great about reading these stories? You know, like Alfred the Great, His, if you look at Alfred, he was like, 
man, he had stomach issues. He was in pain. He was the youngest son. There was no expectation that he would be king other than just his three brothers died before that. Stonewall Jackson. Oh, yeah. Eye condition, like not so socially awkward as all get out. EQ of an engineer. Everyone in in his college days when he's teaching, they're like, he's the worst professor of all time. Yeah. Anyway. And so none of these men, I, I mean, none of these men were that special until they were put in front of a dragon. Yeah. Until they were facing battle and they had to make the hard decisions and they had to choose. Uh, one of the great things with Alfred at the Battle of Ashdown, they're in the shield wall. They only have half of their army and they're facing the whole host of the Viking army invading their homeland. And the thing is that's really important to recognize is that with a shield wall, there's usually 10 units deep uh, that have to fill in the shield wall. Um, it's just a wall of shields. I mean, it's, it's in the name, but uh, it would be absolutely detrimental if one of the men would flee. This much, is like the how worst much thing more, that can happen. How much more if Alfred, who is leading this mm-hmm. battle, if he fled, the men have nothing to fight for. And so you see a man with almost no battle experience at all, very young, no mm-hmm. expectation to be king, probably going to die. And instead of running- Half the troops don't show up. They said that he <laughs> acted like a wild boar in battle. Mm-hmm. And they all ultimately won the Battle of Ashdown. Not to give it away, but it's been around for, you know, 1,200 years. So Yeah, I mean, you guys, it's not a spoiler. <laughs> if it's, it's been over a millennia. Yeah. Yep. You're, it's on you. It's just on you. So anyway, uh, I mean, that, I think that it's so important to feed your kids this sort of food. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like protein to build muscle. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a similar thing. You feed them the right stories and you win their hearts with the right stories. Yeah. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Voyage of the Dawn Treader yeah. about Eustace reading all the wrong he stories. He wrote all the wrong stories. All the wrong stories. <laughs> all about exports and imports and taxes. And I mean, yeah, he was like just, a perfect little bureaucrat. That. It was like Title IX. He had the Title IX reading plan. Yeah. So you feed the kids the right stories and then they have a foundation in which to draw from. When, when you say like there's a challenge out there. And it's an opportunity for you to win. They're like, they've got uh, this narrative that's been built into them. It's mm-hmm. part of their bones yeah. that they know that there's opportunity out there to win glory. But on the other hand, if all you've consumed yourself mm-hmm. and all they have consumed is you're fussing about your your uh, myth of decline, sort yeah. of modern news media stuff, mm-hmm. then when they see a challenge, they're going to shrink back because yeah, there's no way to win. Yeah. The, Everything is doom and gloom. We and and we are like part of this comes in the human psyche and soul from from the reality in our story that we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We come from a father and a mother who fell from Eden, who fell from perfection, and so uh, the the human soul longs to return to perfection and glory. Of course, we do. But what we're missing often is that we can tell our children all about the decline, and we can fail to teach them the St. Brandon, the navigator, St. Brandon, the voyager heart of now go quest for Eden's shores. Now we're, we're, we're on our way to something better than Eden. We're on our way to something, not just man innocent, but man glorified. We're in Christ. We have a conqueror who's gone before. He's cut off Goliath's head. Let's follow him. Let's rout the Philistines. Let's win the land. If our hearts remain true, if we don't worship idols, if we put the idols out of the land, the Lord will bless us. He'll cause us to prosper. Like that's that's the part in the story that people often, it's so funny, the evangelical mind so often wants to stop at the battle of uh, for Gondor 
before <laughs> Eric Horn shows up. Like, and, and that's the, like, imagine reading that story to your children and then just saying, the end. And then putting it down. They'd be like, what are you doing, dad? We lose down here, Keep son. reading. Like, and that's what I want to encourage people to do is to keep reading in the book and read with white-pilled eyes. Don't, don't read with black-pilled eyes. Yeah, and I think a big part of it, too, uh, as we unpack some more categories in which people could be potentially black-pilled, it seems like one of the keys here is not just seeing how things are out there, but you'll protect yourself from being black-pilled if you actually go and build and start doing things to solve problems. So one of the things that that I liked about Ogden originally was things like St. Brennan's. You weren't just complaining about the public school system. You were saying, we're going to do something about this. Mm. And it's going to be really hard. So we that would be an area, I think, public education. You look at it and you say, what a mess. Uh, but again, uh, and we've talked about it in other shows, you could go start a school. There's a lot – that you could do. Well, so uh, just a comment on that. So I remember watching a survival show. I think it was Les Stroud or something like that. And he said, psychologically, what you have to do is every day you have to improve your situation just mm-hmm. a little bit. Yep. Mm. I mean, it, it, think about that in a Jordan survival Peterson situation. says the same thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so you're in a survival situation, like something's gone wrong and you are probably going to die. Just make right? progress in one just, thing. Just make progress. Yep. Just one day at a time. And so that's the thing. You you look out at the landscape and you're like, this is bad. What improvement can I make today? Right. And it really helps. Powerful. It really does help. So like you said, it's easy to say like all the kids are they're in trouble. Like yeah. public or, education, that's bad. Oh, and yeah. so what are we going to do today even, to make that better? Mm-hmm. Even with church situations, I know people are in a lot of bad church situations. We issued an invite to people, connect with us. If you want to come to Ogden, we're issuing the invite. But I remember being that spot where it's like I have zero connections. I don't even know which church I would go to uh, in a bad spot. And I remember talking to Michael Foster, and he was like, start tweeting really based things and see who responds. Yeah, Michael Foster is responsible for all of Eric's tweets is what you're saying. Uh, yes, yes, I blame him for all of them. <laughs> so I started, yeah, and then he called me like a week later, and he was like, well, I'll probably tweak here, tweak there. But but, but I thought at the time, I, a lot of these steps of progress, it feels like worthless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, Michael, thanks. That's really the, that's really the advice I needed. Tweet. Yeah, thanks, Tweet. pal. Uh, you know, and then he said connect with people that you meet on Twitter. It was basically network. Yeah. And, uh, but networking is slow. And it's like, okay. So I just was diligent about this. Long story short, people have heard it. I, I meet Dan, I meet Brian. We come here. So I think making progress, even if it's an inch, even if it means making your bed in the morning, that will also, you'll start getting progress in your own life. And then you can be a more optimistic, positive people for those around you. Mm-hmm. Education is one. I know we've talked a lot about that. We had an episode not too long ago. Some other ones, though, that I think are really interesting economic. Areas areas where we can blackpill our children. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The economic area, it is so easy to look out there. I, I Look, I know what interest rates are. I know what my mortgage is. I know I can look at data and I can say, you know, in you know 1994, if I made 60K a year, that's the equivalent of $225,000 today. That's a pretty blackpill thing mm-hmm. if, if you want to go down that road. But what we've done instead is say, yep, that sucks. Gonna, I mean, spending my emotional capacity, Capacity on those things is, like, worthless. Mm -hmm. I can't change that. I'm not, like, the Fed. I can't go back in time. I can't undo all the Ukraine spending. I have no control over that. What I can do 
is start working on solutions. Even if they seem like they're a drop in the ocean of what's going on in the world, it's still an act of faith. God seems to bless this. Um, Dan, talk to me about economics. How do you how do you encourage fathers in this moment like not to be blackpilled economically? Yeah, I mean, you listen to like the Anthony Oliver song "Richmond North of Richmond." Yeah, and it rings true, and it's it's I like the song. Strikes a nerve. Okay. Yeah. It strikes a nerve. The important thing is to then adopt. Uh, it's it's a investor's mantra, I guess, and that's there's always opportunity. There's always opportunity out there. And there's so, people who got rich in the depression. Yes. Yes. And so you don't have to be uh, just stuck in this cycle of like, well, I guess there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to complain about it every time I go grocery shopping or go to the gas pump and um, because it actually does hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it hurts a yes. lot. And so I sympathize with that. I, I can relate. But there's always opportunity. Mm-hmm. And there's always opportunity, especially if you adopt the mindset of I'm going to improve my situation each day. Yeah. So if if economically you're feeling the pain of this moment in our in our history, you should do something about that. Yes. Just just one small thing. And the the temptation, I think, especially economically, more so than any other category, is looking for the quick, cheap fix, the uh-huh. get rich quick sort of thing. It's it's one of the few categories that we actually do that in. To where you're like, I'm I'm just gonna see how little I can invest to get the maximum amount of return. And it's really easy to get suckered into some sort of scam. So I would just say that with, you know, a note of caution. But but that being said, look at uh, the Proverbs as it talks about like wealth gained slowly is easily kept. Uh, wealth, ga- wealth gained quickly is easily lost. And so take uh, a time and money equation and look at the opportunities out there. And there's there's some – I would also say along with what Eric said about networking – that you should also network because some of the best things that you can do is just look at what you need locally in your own community mm-hmm. and then say like, well, I mean, I think I could solve that, that issue. Mm-hmm. It seems like people are really having a hard time finding like competent lawn care people or a competent contractor that can install fences or, yes. or whatever it is. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's lots of opportunities in the trades, but there could be other things too. Like you could do contract work in which, you know, in the, in the field that you're already in. And start your own business doing that. I, I mean, the opportunities, honestly, are endless. I think the key there with networking, I was thinking of this last night. We had Psalm sing, and uh, my, my bass section, by the way, was holding it down. Um, you know what? I got to so give you guys do. credit. You were almost as good as a tenor. So it was very, no, I mean, that's really no, good. No, that's not what that was happening. That is such a high compliment that I could pay you. <laughs> that's I right. mean, wow. Uh, but it was interesting. You think about basses, they sing low, tenors are higher. So like B, A, like, you know. Hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, but this, go on. Yeah, didn't, sorry, I didn't follow. I'll fight you in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but it was interesting. Uh, so we have the meal, and we're just talking to all, uh, a bunch of different guys, asking them, you know, how was your week? What are you working on? I'm blown away at our church by the per capita number of guys who are like, oh yeah, I'm a software this or that, but um, I get my I can get my work done in like two hours. So I started this business on the side. Because I saw a need as per Dan's thing. Like, I saw a need. Yeah, turns out you can make a lot of money doing it. Like, there's just guys that it's good for you to be around. Like, if you're a young guy especially, mm-hmm. and you're saying, I don't know economically what I could do. First of all, if you come to a place like Ogden, you could probably work for one of these guys and learn a heck of a lot, mm-hmm. you know? But for me, even for me, and, and and when we have business issues and we're like, what do I do about this really confusing thing in my business? 
I'll talk to Kevin Love or I'll talk to one of the other guys here who are super successful. And they're like, oh, that's simple. I dealt with that 10 years ago. Here's what you need. Here's the book. Read this, do this, blah, blah, blah. And you have a path forward. So it really is helpful. Like having other optimistic guys who are doing stuff mm-hmm. and making progress. The other side of the equation would be when I was working in corporate America and all my colleagues and friends are W2 mindset guys. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm thinking of starting a business. I don't know. It seems kind of risky. What about your 401k? What about healthcare benefits? What about the, but like, they're always trying to talk you out of it. Yeah. Whereas like people at our church now are just like full sin, bro. Just gonna send it. And you're like, I don't actually know if yeah, everything just quit should... your job. <laughs> yeah. like, hey guys, well, by on, the way, on. not everything is full sin. <laughs> not <laughs> yeah. everything is full sin. Like when you're at a red light and you're going to be late to school to get your kids to school that day and there's traffic passing at 50 miles an hour full send isn't the right answer oh just it patience. wasn't well, I thought you were going to say so that was the wait time. for the green light oh. then full send actually, <laughs> actually protecting against a W2 mindset for the sake of your children is really really important because you're training them how to view work mm-hmm. and so the w, standard W2 mindset maybe you could walk us through that Eric what is a standard W2 mindset yeah I think fundamentally like you're going to work for a set number of hours and you're getting paid for the time being there there's a lot that goes to it that's kind of I would say hard to describe, but basically like you're on the plantation working for them. You tend to not think of things as an owner. Yeah. Your days are typically filled with low value work. Yeah. You're a day laborer fundamentally. And I think uh, when I talk about helping guys get out of that, even if you're going to remain working there, which I did for like 10 plus years, you can still change your mindset. You know, and this gets into like side hustles and all these other stuff. I think it's so important though for optimism because if a guy feels like, you know, uh, what was the old song, the old country song? Like my grandpa used to listen to it. I owe my soul to the company store, the coal mm-hmm. mining song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they, they just kept work. Like the company would pay them money and then they would charge them for everything. Like rent, you stay in this little shack and then the company store, everything's marked up. And you, you get to the next paycheck. And you're like, how much money I have? And they say, we well, have negative $25. Yeah, so this what? is uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford, 16 tons is the song. And uh, you load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. That is depressing. And so if you want to give your kids hope, you need to give them financial hope. And so I'm even thinking about conversations I have with my you know, my 14 and 16-year-old. They're like, houses are so expensive. I was like, I know, but you know, we bought a bigger one, so there's room. Uh, we're going to take that hit because we can right now uh, for you guys. And, you know, if you're married young, if you're starting businesses, you have a place to live. Like, we got you. Mm-hmm. That causes them to be, like, creative and yep. take risks because they know they can do that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but but I remember, you know, most of the people in our generation, it was like, I was literally told when you're 18, you're on your own. 100% on your own. Mm-hmm. There will not be help. And it was kind of like, well, that kind of limits the options, you know, and and then you get into corporate America and listen, the reason I've been so adamant about helping guys uh, think through small business and stuff like this is corporate America will suck your soul out and they will not care. Mm-hmm. Like staring at carpet walled cubicles while uploading articles to the internet or doing yeah. data entry or they'll whatever. Fire, and they'll fire you 30 years in your career and leave you with nothing and not care. They literally don't care. They're not people, et cetera. All that stuff. It's, they're lizard people. They're lizard people. Here, we're on record, Kings Hall. 
all corporations are lizard people. All no, corporations. I'm just kidding. That's, that's no, this is guys. a really important part of the battle, though, the dragons that are, are out there to fight. And this has been the absolutely the battlefront of our time. Yeah. This is the war that's being waged, this economic war. And I say that because you can see with the rise of paganism, you know, as Eric says, like the rise of the old gods or the strong gods, uh, what you have is, uh, I mean, all you have to do is look at the HR department, which is like the bishops of this economic religion war. Yeah, the lady bishops. Uh, Because you can see if you don't ascend to their standards of worship and their blasphemy laws and their, their, you know, view of righteousness, if you don't put the 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 gay thing in your email signature if you don't wear the gay pin if you don't say you know essentially that Caesar is Lord you know in the LGBTQ uh, frame of worship then you will be fired this is economic war and so COVID which, made this plain by the way mm-hmm. yeah, oh, yeah absolutely absolutely if you don't wear the mask if you don't get the the jab if you don't do when this, this was like, the, the the big and I know you want to continue but again going back Google Archipelago yeah, I was on a roll. Google Archipelago, they talk about this very thing. We do not live in a modern uh, Stalinist statism anymore. They use the economy to enforce all the policies of the bureaucratic filth world government. Yeah. And so that's where people are feeling the weight of the tyranny is actually in their job. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, think about it this way. If you are a have the mindset of a W-2 employee, I mean, m- most everybody is a W-2 employee to some degree or another, right? I mean, we're W-2 employees uh, mm-hmm. of New Chris and Press. Yeah. And so – We just also sit on the board. We yeah, we also sit on the board. <laughs> hey, so. let's not give away like, – the feds, if you're listening in, it's all legal. It's on the ep- – it's not no, tax legal. Guys, okay. It's, it's not, not tax, tax evasion. It's literally I not. I still pay taxes. I do pay taxes. Probably. Actually, <laughs> I need to make more to pay tax. Anyway, yeah. uh, no, what was I going to – what was I saying? Okay, so yeah, yeah, the mindset of a freedom. W-2 employee, okay, that's the important part. It's not just that you get a W-2. It's not your tax status. It's the way you approach your job. So if you approach your job like a standard corporate employee, we are like, I hate my job. I don't like the people I work with. I especially don't like the person I work for. And my work has no meaning and I'm just going to fuss about it. And then I'm going to send my kids to public school. And then they're going to go to some state university so that they can learn how to be a good W-2 employee as well. You're perpetuating a cycle that will produce losers. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't mean like losers in the sense of like, hey, that dude's a loser. I mean like they will lose. You will lose your generations. That's what you're in danger of is because you're actually not able to engage this war that's going on. And one of the main battlefronts is the economic battlefront. And you need to approach that differently with a certain form of optimism versus being blackpilled about it. Because this is, especially for men, especially for men, this is the point in which we have the ability right now to do battle, which sounds kind of weird and abstract, but this is the point of... Uh, where where fighting is very hot right now, is and and you can see that with with inflation and with taxation and with property tax, all that, uh, you can see that's actually a pain point. And so one of the the myths of decline that we've received is that in that package deal of the myth of decline is that you should actually reject wealth as well. The best way to protect yourself against money, of love of money, is to just not have it. 
And so don't desire it. Don't have aspirations. Don't have any um, sort of motivations for the future. It, it's all a package deal, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the opportunities right now is for Christians to be able to, to be crafty, to look out, be you know as crafty as serpents and as innocent as doves in the economic world and say, how can I actually bring in wealth and use it righteously mm-hmm. to bless my people? And then also to bless your generations, mm-hmm. because they'll see the path forward and say, dad wasn't just some corporate loser that just sunk his whole life into a company that doesn't care and work that doesn't matter, but he actually built something and I'm going to build something too. Yeah. Yeah. I think the whole idea of spending your strength for things that are both fruitful and beneficial to your generations, even if you're working a ton of hours, it's, it's about the way that you work and the meaning that you find in it. Um, gentlemen, some of the other things I want to touch on as we uh, talk about areas to be blackpilled. One is, um, and you've seen a lot about this in the in the news on Twitter, uh, red pill manosphere, really black pill manosphere, judicial injustice, marriage divorce problems. I think the first thing to state here is we're all in 100% agreement that there's a real problem, that it really needs to change. But there's also people out here who are like, don't get married, get a vasectomy, use surrogacy, heinously biblical, unbiblical options, get super gay. Gay! So if you're going to give encouragement to guys about, like, how do you look that in the eye, but then, you know, not get blackpilled? We've said for economics kind of how to do that. Brian, what, how do you start thinking through this issue? See our episode on preparing children for marriage for some of this, but just... It's all about the quality of the spouse and of the community the spouse comes from, not the systemic injustice that's built into the system. The most important factor is still and always will be who you marry, not what the legal system is at the time. Because you're making a covenant before God to this woman. That's what you want your children, your, your daughters to marry a worthy man, your sons to marry a worthy woman. And so as a father, the way that we avoid blackpilling our children is by teaching them about, again, it's always this same pattern. We teach them about the dragon and then we teach them how to fight it. Teach them about the dragon. You teach them how to fight it. You say, daughters, this scriptures are very much (laughs) focused on teaching these things. Don't marry a foolish man. Don't go covenant yourself to a worthless man. Sons, don't go marry a worthless woman, a foolish woman, a loud, brash woman. Dragon, Here's its weakness. You just, you, you just, you can't be like dragon, 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 dragon. And so any woman you marry is going to stab you in the back and steal your kids. Can I ask you what, like some of these communities that have got black pilled, I guess my question is, why do you think they got that way? I, I tend to see a lot of things like, um, for, for example, the, the number of guys complaining about the quality of women who also themselves happen to be like man whores addicted to pornography. And you're like, okay, well, I mean, that's really not good. And, th- and then I look at uh, reverse situations, like maybe my own, where it's like my wife and I, when, when we met and got married, we were not like super devout Christians, like barely nominal Christians. Like you, you look at kind of how the relationship evolved. There's what seems like in college some level of conversion. You start leading your wife because you have Christian guys, even in like big Eva churches telling like lead your wife, do blah, 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 do this thing. She follows and, you know, 20 years later, you, you you have a great marriage. So when I hear guys say, like, there's no way to find a good wife today, I'm like, I think you're wrong. Yeah, they're just incorrect. A lot of them are filtering their own experiences 
and then overlaying those. But if you go back, I think, even through some of the experiences, you'll be able to find moments of folly or foolish decision-making. And like where is, they're sh- maybe shooting themselves in the foot. Right. And this is not to say that there there are many men who find themselves and there are many women who find themselves married to somebody where they made the correct decisions with the information they had and the person simply sinned yeah, and completely screwed them. And that happens. And in those situations, it's all the more important that you have the community, that you have the people around you to be able to help you. Now you have a new dragon in your life and you've got to fight it. Again, black pill is still not the answer. Even when you've been com- when you have been totally uh, routed in a battle with a, with sin or with somebody sinning against you, we look to Christ. We look even at the example of the martyrs. This is why we sing songs like "The Son of God Goes Forth to War," and we look at the martyrdom of Stephen, and we say, "Pursuing righteousness with vigor is still the answer, even if they kill you." Well, is it is it not a little ironic? I mean, like Jesus Himself is crucified. <laughs> and yet, while being crucified, doesn't go black pill. He says, Father, forgive them. Yeah, forgive them. They, they know, know what not what they do. Like, we actually have an example of what it looks like, uh, you know, First Peter 4. Like, you know what it looks like to be sinned against, and mm-hmm. we're called to imitate Christ, who didn't revile, who didn't, mm-hmm. you know, shout back into the void, all these things. At the same time, we we could make real progress and say something like, yeah, yeah let's encourage, if we have lawyers in our church or we're uh, associated with organizations. We definitely want to see no-fault divorce, for example. We want to see that done away with. Mm-hmm. If we can leverage relationships with congressmen in our state, we definitely want to do that. Yep. While also saying we're also not going to throw our hands up in the air and just say, well, I give up. Yeah. Like Genesis one twenty eight still applies. Yep. I think it's what we're saying. Still the right answer. Dan, thoughts on that before we move on? Yeah, I would just say um, with where did this come from, this this black pill about about marriage and and divorce and not not wanting to pursue marriage and things like that. I think what Brian said about having a bad experience yourself is is true, but you also couple that with for men, guys like Andrew Tate or any of the other black pill guys, where they're just it's confirmation bias. Where they're yeah. like, Yeah, yeah, of course this is true. I yeah. experienced this. And then and then you start eating that media. Yeah, you we, know, we and then self select. Things right. to confirm yeah, our yeah. opinions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then for women, you know, you have a bad experience with a guy and then you start listening to feminists about yep. how much, you well, know, guys are just worthless. And yeah. you're like, yeah, absolutely. Of course that's true. We, were, we self-select our own narrative that we've already determined and then we find stories to support it. Mm-hmm. This is what piece called confirmation bias. This we the, do it, guys. I mean, I, I do this. We all do this. Yeah, the, of course. The, of course the, we're going to do the it. The baseball player. Uh, we were talking about this the other day. The baseball player who was like, re-commenting all the black pill stuff about how the, you know, women have all the power and blah, 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 blah. And then somebody like responded to him and they're like, didn't you cheat on your wife like 15 times? (laughs) Yeah. You're like, come my guy. And he's like, well, I did, but so would you. I mean, I'm like an alpha stud. You know, it's just this whole. And you're like, okay, you, come on. That's not the system. That was, the system didn't get you, my dude. Yeah. The system didn't get you. You got you. You were like, oh, who who did this to me? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the stick yeah, you know, the other thing to remember, and, and this is a theme through through all of what we're talking about in this yeah, episode, is yeah. that surprise, there's risk. It's like, right? Wow, you're going to go fight dragons. You know, you're you're, you're actually, telling me there's risk in yeah, fighting there's dragons. Actually, risk. What involved in that fight? There the is risk. Time. Like you take the information you have and you try to marry the best spouse you can. Yeah. But guess what? There's risk. Yep. There's risk. 
As a huge proponent of the carnivore diet, I quickly learned how great eggs are for you, especially when you slonk them 8 to 12 at a time. But whether you drink them raw or scramble them with some sausage, they're good for your heart and mind and they help you build a ton of muscle pretty quickly. My preferred source for eggs is from my own backyard, and I've loved getting my birds from Ideal Poultry. Ideal Poultry is the number one backyard poultry supplier in the country, and they're also wonderful people. Ideal is owned and operated by a solid Christian family who is worthy of your patronage if you are looking for some fantastic birds. So visit Ideal Poultry today at idealpoultry.com. Again, that's idealpoultry.com. You can also check the link in the show notes. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risks. To join this growing community that is already building wealth into future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact Private Family Banking partner Chuck DeLaterante at his email, chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. To set up an appointment and to receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street, and avoid the coming banking meltdown, go to the link in the show notes for more information. And you teach your children that. And you teach them, like Dan always says, that the greatest risk is doing nothing. Yeah. You think you're being safe, and you're like, I'm just not going to do anything. You sit there, you put your talent under your butt, you sit on it, and then what have you just done? You've you've guaranteed yeah, I mean, failure. Yeah, well, this, <laughs> this seems like another thing with, like, not blackpilling your kids, but... Uh, your kids need to see you take risks, things not work out, and you respond well to that. Mm-hmm. Like that needs to be part of this process too, where they're like, you know, it, it affected me in a very big way seeing a whole generation of older men above me who were like working for their 16 tons and they were like, this is just the way it is. You put your head down and you take it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. One of the other areas where this could be you know, apply directly to us, but, you know, the bad church thing. Uh, you hear it all the time. There's no good churches. There's no good pastors. There's nowhere for my family to go to worship. And w- what I typically say to people is like, well, I understand it's tough, and I want to be realistic about that. But saying nowhere is different than saying it's bad out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and the thing is, it's easy, again, with all of these different categories that we're looking at, it's easy to look outside and to say, wow, it's really bad and it's awful and it's really hard. But the place to start, the first place of improvement is with your own house, mm-hmm. with yourself in your own house. And so, yeah, it might be true that there's actually, in your area, there might not be a good church. Mm-hmm. There might not be a good church, but you have to actually face the reality that maybe there is a good church nearby and you're the problem. That could be actually true. Yeah, that, that uh, sometimes happens, guys. Yeah. And so you have to be honest with yourself first mm-hmm. because it could be true, but it, it also could be true that you're the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think also it goes back to the risk thing. You may have to make some – take some risks. It may mean moving. It may mean trying a different church. Again, we've talked about this, but, you know, obviously saying the cost is worth it. Um, I, I, I want to ask you, Brian, if you have any follow-up thoughts on that. Obviously, you're the – 
preaching pastor of a church. Mm-hmm. So there's at least one good church, am I right, guys? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, my guy. We got jokes. Uh, but no, seriously, <laughs> I mean, how do you keep people from being blackpilled about the church? And, and, and Brian, this could also go, I'm thinking, for people like who are in churches mm-hmm. where it's like even in really great churches, I've seen people who are just continually complaining about something. Well, I don't like the way the service was. Well, I didn't like that psalm at Psalm Sing. I didn't like this. Well, I just wish people would reach out to me more. Well, I just like because of human nature, you could be Johnny Raincloud on the sunniest day. Mm-hmm. So it seems like fathers have to be on guard uh, for this too, as well. Oh yeah, yeah. So so one of the things that you have to make sure is that. Uh, you don't produce entitled children because that's really what it is. It's entitlement. entitlement. Yeah. Like the whole world does revolve around me. That's what the fusser, the chronic fusser is saying. Like, but you guys are doing things wrong. You don't know what you're doing. I do though. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm the source of all knowledge and wisdom. And and uh, the things that I prefer are actually the best things. Uh, and so you have to protect your children against that. And and th- that goes a long way. But, but the first thing is you actually have to address that in yourself, mm-hmm. being yeah. entitled. And yeah. the thing that I would want to motivate in the congregation and my own children is to have a proper paradigm where you understand the shape of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom of God, that it is a narrative where we are saved by grace and through faith, through the the active obedience of Christ, through his death on the cross, taking our sin, through the forgiveness of our sin um, by the cross but also then onto new life and resurrection that were new creatures in Christ. And so now there is still a, a covenantal framework that's all of reality has overlaid over it. And it is, again, the two paths in, in, in light of your weakness, in light of all of the, the evil out there, in light of the dragons. It's Romans 2, 6. And, uh, you know, on through about verse 10 or 11, he says, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing, Seek for glory. Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And I want to be able to read those verses and explode all and just say amen at the end and have all of the gospel-centered antinomians' heads explode and say son, daughter, church— you're Christians, so if you seek for glory and honor and immortality through the name in the name of Christ and in faith, then he is going to render to you glory and honor, and there will be good and there will be peace. Mm. But for, if you don't, if you apostatize or if you go the way of the world and you don't seek for glory and honor and immortality and you seek for your own glory, you, you seek evil, then there's going to be tribulation and distress, and God will utterly throw you down. But but the what we've, we've neutered in the, the antinomian gospel— is this pattern, this covenantal pattern of blessing and cursing. And so it makes the world seem, it makes it seem like cursing is inevitable. There is no way to seek for blessing and honor and glory and immortality because it's all grace, guys. It's, and, and by that, they end up meaning it's just a roll of the dice. Nothing you do impacts whether God blesses you or not. That is not true. That is completely contrary to the teaching of scripture. For Christians, if you will seek for good, if you will seek in patience and well-doing for glory, then God loves to give you peace and he loves to give you joy. And so I think if you tell your children this, if you teach your congregation this, 
that when they're looking at all of the the tribulation or the evils of the day, that the answer, the Christian answer to that is to say, oh, the Lord's on our side. We're Christians. He told me patiently and in well-doing to seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And he said that when he does that, that he's going to render all these glorious things to us. So I guess I'm just going to believe him and I'm going to do it. And then even if there's, even if there's in my day, even if we die at the battle of Agincourt, right? I'm just going to trust that the Lord is working a greater glory through that death and loss. Even if my wife leaves me, even if we experience the death of a child, even if we have famine, nakedness, tribulation, sword, I'm still going to trust that God is working those promises out in my generations for me personally and for my children and their children, because he said he will. Mm. It's like it's just it's just fundamentally faith versus unbelief. That that's what we're talking about here. Faith versus unbelief. Yeah, and one of the big ways that gets expressed, Brian, I'm thinking about, you know, Jesus and in say like uh John 14, uh sending the Spirit, um, the Father, the Trinitarian Godhead, but particularly the Father wants to encourage, he wants to comfort, he wants to give peace to his people. In the world you will have tribulation. Yeah. We're actually promised yeah, dragons. There you go. You're going to have it. But I'm supplying you with everything you need to do that. Opposite to this seems like could be things like telling our kids they're losers, inciting them to wrath, um, yes. telling them they're not good enough, that they'll never make it, especially for fathers, Ephesians 6, 4. We need to be on guard about exasperating the kids. Yes. So talk to me about this. Why is that so important that our children know? Like, we don't want them to be entitled, as we talked about before. Mm-hmm. But we do want them to have a little bit of a, you know, God-aimed and God-fueled, like, glory. They want glory. And and there should be a little bit of confidence with David stepping up to the line saying, we got this. In God's strength, we can take down these Goliaths. But but that really comes down to fathering. Do you, do you set your kid up so that he believes that? Or do you tell your kid that he's not good enough. Well, yeah. So the whole idea of, of being blackpilled is uh, inciting your children to wrath. Mm. Because like you said, so if you if you have a conversation with your son or your daughter after they've sinned and you're like, essentially the entire backdrop of your entire life is that there's no purpose. You know, functionally, it's it's uh, it's not, what is the, what is the worldview? Nihilistic. Yeah. You know, it's, you're operating like a nihilist. Mm-hmm. And then you tell them like you've sinned and essentially you're a loser. And, and then they realize like, well, you know, everything dad says and does, uh, looks like there's no purpose to anything. Yeah. Like they're going to be angry and bitter and they're going to be lonely and they're going to be sad. Mm -hmm. What? I mean, it's really a depressing life and they will despise you for it. You're provoking them to wrath. Yes. You're teaching them that in your failure of optimism, you're teaching them Instead of all of these difficult things are a stage upon which the Lord has placed you to win glory in your day in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're teaching them that those things are going to overwhelm and overcome them. So it's like, it doesn't matter what different thing, whether it's politics or the church or economics, at the end of the day, what you're doing is you are provoking them to wrath by teaching them that the only response they could possibly have to these things is bitterness, anger, wrath. Not righteousness, joy, yeah. action, courage, even in the face of failure. Yeah, it, and it's really important that when you're disciplining your children, you have complete chastisement. And what I mean is if you have incomplete chastisement, mm-hmm. you're essentially saying you, you screwed up, you sinned, and then you give them some sort of discipline, disciplinary action. 
and then you stop. And that's incomplete chastisement. Okay. A complete chastisement is to say, is to do those steps, but then you continue with saying you must repent from that and you are now restored. Mm. And the reason that you're disciplining your child is because you love them. You want them to deny themselves. Mm-hmm. That's one of the primary things you're doing from, you know, your, your child's born until they leave your house. You're teaching them to deny themselves. Mm-hmm. You must not act selfishly in this way. You yeah. must say no to yourself because that's producing discipline. That's what it means to be disciplined is saying, I'm going to say no to that desire yes. because I have something better but you have to give the positive vision forward. What are you disciplining them for and towards? And it's towards righteousness. It's towards the battle that God has laid out for them. It's towards uh, good things like blessing people and helping people Mm. and not being a curse to people and being a weight to people. And so it's really important that as you're looking at your children, you complete the chastisement. And uh, part of that is in in the restoration where you're like, I forgive you. Mm You know, and you pray for them, Lord, sanctify them of this sin. Thank you for the forgiveness that you've granted through the blood of your son. Yeah. And then you say, you know, you're you're in fellowship. I love you. Yep. I am proud of you. Let's let's keep moving forward and, yes. and I'll help you with this. I love you too much to let you continue in mm. this this action. And that complete chastisement will not incite your children to wrath. Yeah. It will not, because you're saying, I'm showing you how much I love you, and here's the way forward. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Gentlemen, as we close down this episode, which has been inspiring. Thank you, Eric. It's been very white-pilling. I've been I, I want to thank you for t- saying that I have inspired you in this You episode. have white-pilled me yet again. Um, so I actually want to hand things over to Brian for sort of a charge and benediction. Yeah, let's do it. As we wrap things up. How, uh, again, just kind of summarizing everything we've said. How do you send guys off and say, like, fathers, go be inspired, go be white-pilled, and then... Yeah. Honestly, like, go white pill your family. Yeah, yeah. And because the other person that we haven't really talked about is your wife. Like, mm-hmm. oh, your man, wife yeah. cannot, yeah. she cannot see a dour, critical, complainy, sad all the time guy. Yeah. She needs to see in you a leader who is courageous, competent, and yeah. full of hope. Women are often prone to anxiety in our day. And so you're one of your chief jobs as a husband is constantly to help your wife work through that anxiety Christianly and to realize that the Lord is on her side that, you know, often I think of things like having, having children can be very difficult. The, the idea of getting pregnant after you've just had a baby or like, you know, we're in this season where we have six kids now and, and it's like difficult work. My wife's blood pressure goes through the roof when she gets pregnant. There's just natural, we're dealing with the curse. It's really hard work right? The curse has landed there. I'm sure it's the same with older kids. Oh, yeah. You know, and the worries of a mother with older children yeah. and the decisions they're going to make or are making. Yeah, it completely shifts mm-hmm. uh, with older children. And then and then it ends up being, it's not like, oh, man, like I need to discipline my kid because he keeps like stealing cookies. It's like my kid just got, you know, a car accident and his second speeding ticket in a week. We have to have a conversation. <laughs> and and yeah. but, but then it's like... They're, Literally, like they could be like life in danger type questions. Yes. And yeah. So it gets more complicated. It shifts, but yeah, yeah there's always and and you can be the father who's like, you know, do do you complain about the insurance claim to mm-hmm. your wife? Is that going to be a smart move? Right. Or or do you say, you know, again, this is all like this never actually happened, right? But <laughs> you 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 say like 
it's okay, babe. I'll go deal with it. Yes. I'll go take care of this. The Lord is like, he knows our son. He knows us. Yes. You He's shield not him. surprised by this. Yeah. And then you silently drive the car and you're like, <laughs> but the, you like, shield them. You have to, this is something that leaders do. It's, I always envision it like being the pilot in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. When the microphone is on, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you would please put on your seatbelts. We're then, about to experience some turbulence. There will be some mild turbulence. You might feel a little bump or two. Like they're as nonchalant as possible. Yeah. I asked one of my pilot friends, I was like, do you ever say that? And you're like, holy cow, this is horrible. And he goes, all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, there's moments where as the pilot, you might be like, I don't know if we're going to make it. He's thinking of metal fatigue on the airframe. And he's <laughs> yeah. like, did they use the right size screw? You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It. Ben just heard metal fatigue on the airframe, and he turned, and he was like, instantly locked in. His like inner engineer As his out. old A-10 repairing engineer phase. Yeah, but I mean, what our job as, as fathers and as husbands is to shield our children. We're taking the arrows, we lift the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy, and then we teach them how to fight, knowing they're going to take some hits. They're mm-hmm. going to go out and sin. Your kids, you know, like you're going to, some, some of you will find out, oh, my son, in spite of my protections, has stumbled into the world of pornography, and now I have to disciple him through this and see him repent of this and grow and put up new defenses. You're going to have problems. There are going to be areas where the curse simply breaks in and throws a curveball at you or the enemy or your own flesh. You're going to have those things. But as a father, our response is to always be walking our children and our family and our wives through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to new life and glory. That's where we're going. You know, honey, kids, that's where we're going. And so the charge that I would give to our listeners here to end this episode, a charge and a benediction, I would say number one is that you need to have some conversations with your sons and daughters. If you haven't had conversations that sound like this, then you need to have them. Son, things are going to be hard here economically in in housing or in in the job market or in finding what things are going to be hard here. There's a lot of bad churches out there. Daughter, there's a lot of foolish men It's going to be difficult. There's going to be lots of battles that you're going to fight, but the Lord made you for them. Mm. And he's on your side. And he intends to bring you through and see you win greater glory, I pray, than I won or, or my father won or his father won, because the Lord loves to show his faithfulness to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his command. So son, daughter, keep his command, walk in faith, have joy, don't be bitter, because the Lord is on our side. And simply, I would say, may the God of peace crush Satan under your feet. It's beautiful. Thanks for listening, guys, to this episode of the King's Hall. If you enjoy the show, become a supporter. Come help us make this possible. Continue to make strides in making the show better and more helpful. And uh, you can do that with the Patreon link in the description below. But until next time, festinalente, make haste slowly. We'll see you next time on the King's Hall.